Where does it go? Where does it go? All of that cast off junk, where does it go? Welcome to Where Does It Go, a podcast about stuff. I'm Emily. And I'm Sarah. And what are you talking about today, Sarah? I am talking about what happens when you donate your old eyeglasses. Ooh. Yeah, so I love eyeglasses. I have at least 10 pairs because I buy them online because online has interrupted the near monopoly that used to exist, and that's why you paid a bajillion dollars for eyeglasses. But anyway, when my eyeglasses are old, I donate them. I've always tried to donate them just because I think it's a good idea, and so I was curious... What happens and why when you donate your old eyeglasses? So when I was re, I have a tiny rant first. <laughs> it's a tiny. It's like a sentence and a half. When I was researching this topic, I found a couple of statements online that were irritating. A few people, including a Freakonomics forum, pretty much said just to throw your eyeglass away because it isn't worth it to donate them. And that chaps my butthole. You shouldn't just throw them away because... They are useful, and I'll tell you why. It's estimated that about 250 million people in the world need eyeglasses or vision corrective services and don't have access to eye care either because they're too poor or too rural. A lot of people in this world don't make money like us Americans do. They are living off less than a dollar a day. Believably, they are. Luckily, because people can be awesome. There are many nonprofits in the world, staffed by mostly volunteers, that actually collect old eyeglasses and distribute them to people in the world that need them or scrap them, which I didn't know, and sell the scrap to make money for other services like optometrist exams to actually get new eyeglasses for people and setting up eye care services in poor countries and poor areas with people with little access to eye care. So I have a list of nonprofits that I looked up if you're interested in donating your eyeglasses. Then you should be. (laughs) (laughs) There's one site, and I'd never heard of this one, but apparently they hand-deliver eyeglasses that have been cleaned and are in good repair to community clinics and globally to people that need them. And you can actually donate your old glasses at Lens Crafters, Pearl Vision, Sears, and Target, and they will actually go to one site. Then there is Vision Aid Overseas, and Vision Aid was interesting. I stopped by their website, and I was reading a bit about what they do. They actually stopped sending donated secondhand glasses because the World Health Organization and the IAPB, the International Agency for the Prevention of Blindness, has said maybe sending secondhand glasses overseas was not the best way to establish sustainable eye care in other countries. They have their own reasons for that. So instead, you should still donate your eyeglasses. Instead, they recycle the donated eyeglasses and they scrap them for the precious metal content. And they actually have a nice little shop online uh, full of vintage and retro glasses and a bunch of other stuff and that you can buy and they will contribute to their mission overseas. And so the income generated actually helps them set up training for local eye workers, uh, optometrist clinics in poorer countries, and helps those communities by training those workers and having those workers 
help the people that most need it. And they are located in the UK, and I looked up where you could donate those glasses. So in case you're in the UK, it sounds like you can donate to most optometrist offices. They have donation boxes, and most of those are going to vision aid overseas. So then there's new eyes for the needy. And I really like these people. I had never even heard of them. They take the used eyeglasses and send them to medical missions and international charitable organizations to for distribution to um, people in developing nations. They accept a bunch of stuff actually too. They take prescription glasses, reading glasses, sunglasses, safety glasses, children's glasses, and unused contact lenses, unopened, unused contact lenses. And the reason why New Eyes for the Needy is interesting is I saw on their website that they have a voucher program for people in the U.S. So you can actually go to their website and buy a voucher for people, and the, it, they'll give the voucher to other people, and the people that need the glasses will actually get new eyeglasses through this voucher program. And the donated glasses, they actually clean them, they'll recycle them, and then they'll distribute them to poor people overseas. And New Eyes is uh, related to the United Way, if you're familiar at all with the United Way. I couldn't figure out how, if you're not in New Jersey, besides sending them your eyeglasses, to donate that to them. So I guess you either send them to New Jersey, and their address is on their website, and you can actually also buy, you can buy a voucher for someone, um, just buy, do a kindness and send a voucher to a stranger. Uh, or you can buy stuff on the resale shop and it goes to all their charitable organizations for poor people in developing nations. Then we get to Lions Club. And Lions Club is the huge one. So my husband's father is involved in the Lions Club and they do a lot of really great stuff. For, they have an eyeglass recycling center. So there's a lot of various clubs throughout the U.S. and they collect old eyeglasses. And I think when you donate your old eyeglasses in the box at Walmart, this is where these eyeglasses are going. Generally, that's where I've donated my eyeglasses. So the Lions Club um, will go to their, their recycling centers and they, they clean and kind of store, restore glasses as they can. If they can't fix broken glasses or they can't use them, they'll do scrap to cash, which is what a couple of the other places did. And all that goes to their mission of helping people who can't see and that might need ophthalmological surgery, optometrist surgery. And there's a big mission, I think, that they do in Honduras. And people who actually come from sometimes hundreds of miles away just because they don't have access to eyeglasses or ophthalmological surgery. And I watched a video that almost made me cry where this little girl had had surgery and she was blind before and basically the Lions Club and their program actually helped her to see and they will actually distribute the eyeglasses that they collected there, collected, cleaned, the ones that didn't get scrapped, the ones that were in good shape. They will distribute them out to people. And even though the prescription may not be perfect, it's better than being blind. I can tell you that because I started wearing glasses when I was nine and I had no idea I couldn't see until then. I was seven when I started wearing glasses. (laughs) 
So if you don't have a Walmart near you, and I have no idea where you live that you don't have a Walmart near you, I guess it's possible. When I lived in Washington State, I was nowhere near a Walmart. Really? Or a Target? No. I lived in a a town of 700 people. Wow. Okay. Well, if you want to donate your eyeglasses, and you should, you you can send it to the Lions Club International and they, you can actually, they have an address in Oak Brook, Illinois. You can send all your eyeglasses to, and it will contribute to helping little girls and little boys and people who need to see um, your old eyeglasses. So don't throw them away. Don't contribute to the landfill when you can donate them. Even if they're broken, they can be sold for scrap or they can be fixed and sold, if, especially if they're retro cool. They can be sold in one of these cool eyeglass shops, these cool boutiques online and help people in need. That's it. I'm super excited to look at those vintage glasses. I know. Um, so it's shopneweyes.org and it's new, new eyes for the needy. It's a good site. It was cute. We'll put all this on our Twitter yes. and our website. Yes. That's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. Glasses are so important and you forget when you have access to them and contacts Mm -hmm. how critical they are for functioning like it's technically a disability vision impairment and glasses and contacts have been so thoroughly normalized that it's not often seen that way but in in western countries but access being limited means that it becomes more disabling Uh, absolutely and these people just think like they don't see and they live in a rural community. They don't have access. They make less than a dollar a day, a day, if even if they make even make money. So there's no rural doctor nearby. And so their doctor is hundreds of miles away. They can't afford the surgery for their child. They're basically le- leading around their child or their husband or their, you know, aunt or uncle or whatever, because they can't see. And, and when these things roll into town, you know, it's a great it's a great mission. It's a great, awesome thing for people to actually be able to see. It's something we take for granted, I think, in this country. Well, and even providing access for indigent or underserved people in the U.S. Absolutely. Because there's so much emphasis on, oh, you better work if you want to be valued as a human being. But if you cannot see, it's very difficult to work. Yes. And I mean, it's very difficult to do most things when you can't see properly. Yes. And I think this is why I like New Eyes for the Needy so much. It's because they do do work and they say that online. They they have a bunch of like letters online from people. There was an older lady from Louisiana said she could finally read the newspaper again. Oh. Yeah, it was just really sweet. It was really sweet to see. And the people, the haters that were saying, well, just throw your eyeglasses away. I'm like, that's why we're in this sinking ship to begin with. It's because of that defeatist thinking that you can't do anything. And you can. You can help people by donating your old eyeglasses. We should do a a Pinterest board of glasses upcycling. Yes. So if you don't feel like donating them, but they're in your house. Or you find grandpa's glasses or whatever. Yeah, and there's a, you can always you can always put new lenses in your old glasses. I I don't think people some people I don't think realize that you can if you like your old glasses just put new lenses in them. Mm-hmm. I think lens crafters will do that. Yeah, I'm I'm pretty sure a lot of um, I forget what the what the actual job is called. Optician. 
Yes, that's the actual job. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you. <laughs> of people who grind lenses yeah. and shape them to fit and yes. find the uh, like your your pupil center, like your eye center and what your glasses need to be structured like and stuff. Mm-hmm. I buy a lot of my glasses online at Zenny Optical and they didn't give us any money whatsoever, but <laughs> unfortunately. If they want to. If they want to. Hey, Zenny Optical. Where does it podcast at gmail.com? <laughs> But they, they, I actually went to their website to see if they did any kind of charitable donations, and they actually donated $121 million of eyeglasses last year. And their glasses are not expensive, so that's a lot of glasses. Yeah. I thought that was awesome. That's a lot of their glasses. <laughs> that's a lot of glasses. You can get $7 glasses on their right? website. The most expensive glasses I ever bought from them were some transitions, lenses, and some retro 80s frames for, I think I spent $45, and they're the kind of glasses where you go outside and they tint, and they're great for me for work if I know I'm going to be going in and out all day, so that way I don't have to change my sunglasses, and yeah, I think I spent $45. I'm wearing Zenny Optical glasses right now that cost $30. As am I. (laughs) (laughs) It's almost like you told me about their website and I went shopping there. That's possible. I'm kind of evangelical about them. I had this lady in the store one day. She's like, I, I need new glasses, but I can't afford them. Like, new glasses are going to be $200. I'm like, oh, girl, you don't. You, the glasses I'm wearing were $16. She's like, what? So, yeah, I wrote the website down for her. And by the way, they donate glasses. So that's amazing. Yay. Yeah, that's nice. The end. <laughs> <laughs> My topic is uh, an interesting one. It's tangentially related to what I wanted to cover today, but it was too much information to try to track down in the amount of time I had. So I'm going to be talking about something outer spacey in the future, the near future. Yes. But this current outer spacey topic is where do shooting stars and falling stars go? Ooh. Falling stars and shooting stars are often considered the same thing, although Mm -hmm. I would consider shooting stars what you see in the atmosphere that does not fall to Earth, and then I would consider falling stars ones that fall to Earth. There There is a very broad set of things that are considered all the same thing once they enter the Earth's atmosphere. So I'll, I'll do a little terminology first. A meteoroid is something that is less than one meter in diameter, rocky or metallic, and it is flying through space. It has not yet entered the Earth's atmosphere. An asteroid is something that's greater than one meter in diameter that is rocky or metallic. A comet is something that is made of gas, ice, and rocky chunks Mm. and is usually enormous, and they usually also don't enter the Earth's atmosphere because they're made out of more volatile materials. Once an asteroid, comet, meteoroid, or micrometeoroid, enters the atmosphere, so all four of those, they become a meteor. Hmm. All of them. Any of them. Pretty much anything that enters the Earth's atmosphere from space is considered a meteoroid, or is considered a meteor, sorry, by the time it enters the Earth's atmosphere. Uh, it has to be moving fast enough to enter the Earth's atmosphere, approximately 20 kilometers a second. Woo! And then... What makes a meteor a shooting or falling star is the collision between the object and the atmospheric molecules, which 
causes an enormous amount of heat that then makes the rock or metal or even sometimes the uh, ice and gaseous components of a comet incandescent. So that's what you see when you see the little lights of meteor showers or falling stars or shooting stars. Now, once the meteor survives the Earth's atmosphere or any planet or moon or planetoid or anything bigger than an asteroid, once it survives the atmosphere and lands, it's a meteorite. So we've got meteoroid, meteor, and meteorite. So meteoroid is the little one flying around still. Yes. Meteor is the one that's falling to the ground. Yes. And meteorite is the one that's already fallen. Yes. Okay, cool. So I would classify the colloquial falling star as a meteorite, personally. Okay. And I would classify the shooting star as a meteor or a comet because comets, as they approach a star like our sun, start to give off gas and dust and debris because they're melting Mm -hmm. because they're an icy body. They don't enter our atmosphere, but they can sometimes be seen Mm -hmm. in space and they seem like kind of bright and they can have long tails of all the stuff they're giving off. Mm. So that's a little terminology in terms of meteors. They are, they can be asteroids, which are usually again, greater than a meter in diameter. And uh, you hear about them in the news. They're not super common or they can be one of the millions, literally millions daily enter the earth's atmosphere. Really? Meteors. Yes. And they are often very small, like the Mm -hmm. size of a grain of sand. So what happens to those millions of small ones or the larger ones after they enter the Earth's atmosphere? They turn into meteors. They can be destroyed by the atmosphere, broken up into their constituent little bits. The meteor may turn into gas and dust. Some of the gas will burn up. Uh, Our second episode is about fire. You can learn about where fire goes. That might be helpful. Or it becomes part of the atmosphere and can be part of the atmosphere for several months as sort of like particulate dust. Oh, I had no idea it would stay up there. Yeah. It depends on the size of the particles. Mm -hmm. And then they may fall to Earth. And Earth is 75% ocean and a lot of people aren't going to notice something smaller than a grain of sand landing somewhere. Mm -hmm. It's just going to seem like dust from wherever because it's very (laughs) small. You're not necessarily going to think, oh, that speck of dust definitely was from outer space. So you're telling me I could just be outside and there's falling stars falling on my hair? Potentially. I love that. (laughs) (laughs) We are all made of stars there. Yay! They enter the atmosphere almost constantly and they leave air ionization trails. And those are easiest to see at night, which makes sense. But there's about a 50-50 chance of a meteoroid becoming a meteor during the day or during the night makes sense half the earth is in daylight and half is Mm -hmm. in not and we'll talk a little bit more about what happens in the atmosphere now so when you see a shooting star or a falling star or a meteor shower you're seeing the light start to become visible to the naked eye or to a telescope between 76 and 100 kilometers above the earth's surface Uh, there's 1.8 kilometers per mile so divide by two You'll be close enough. Meteor means high in the air. That's why I put this here. It's Greek. Oh, I had no idea. So actually, meteorite really bothers me as a term because they're on the ground. 
they're not in the air. And it is usually small. It's like this. Yeah, so it's a small thing in the air. It's not accurate. It drives me nuts. <laughs> <laughs> I am not an astronomer. <laughs> Don't take my opinion with anything other than an entire shaker of salt. <laughs> if the meteor is going to disintegrate, it's going to happen between 50 and 95 kilometers in the air. Now, I said that sort of collision with air molecules is what causes the incandescence. But if the meteor is greater than 10 centimeters in diameter, it's actually the ram pressure that will cause the incandescence, which is motion of a fluid, this fluid being the air, causing pressure, which increases the heat. Okay. So it has to do with the size of the object Mm -hmm. and the fluid, a.k.a. atmosphere around it. People have been noticing meteorites for millennia. They've been revered worldwide, but they weren't considered, and this was, I only found resources about people in Western science establishments thinking this way. So what I'm about to say does not necessarily reflect an international thought process for millennia, but they weren't considered a cosmic phenomenon until the very early 1800s. They were considered atmospheric. They were thought to be like lightning. And there were a few different people who proposed that they were actually a cosmic phenomenon, uh, including a a man named Dr. Silly Man, (laughs) which makes me laugh. Uh, And then there was also Ernst Florenz Kladny, 1794 German. He was laughed at by his colleagues after publishing a paper about the cosmic origins of meteorites. Isn't that always the way? And meteors. Yeah. Like the guy, the guy that was like, why don't we just wash our hands? Maybe fewer people will die during surgery. And everyone was like, you're, you nut. You, <laughs> you crazy. <laughs> don't be silly. And then, yeah, washing hands. What a waste of time. <laughs> wash your hands. <laughs> Please. Especially if you're operating on me or Emily. Wash your hands. Yes, please. <laughs> By 1807 in the U.S. and 1803 in France, there were these massive meteor showers that enough people observed that they were willing to take seriously that these might be cosmic phenomenon instead of something like lightning. Now, those are that's an American institution and a European institution, mm-hmm. but let's go way back in time. Meteorites make up some of the earliest iron artifacts. Nine iron beads found in Egypt were meteoric in origin. At Mecca, in the Great Mosque of Mecca, there's a black stone in the wall of the building at the center of the mosque, and it's likely a meteorite. Cool. Meaning that people recognized that it was odd and important, and so they put it in a very important place. The Temple of Artemis at Ephesus was founded at the site of a meteorite find. An Iron Age hill fort had a meteorite placed deliberately in it. So that's around 1200 BC. In Arizona, between 1100 and 1200 AD, a meteorite was buried in a feather. Oh, 135 pounds. So this was not a little rock. This was huge. Buried in a feather cloth in a Sinagua burial cyst. So they buried this rock as if it was an important item. Huh. The Pohoake... Pueblo in New Mexico, there was a small meteorite found in a jar at a burial. At the Hopewell burial mounds, there were meteoric iron beads 
Inuits used meteorite chips for cutting edges because they were a convenient metal source. Metal was scarce for a very long time in human history. Right. It's been the type of thing that people have considered important for a very long time. It's been noticed by humans that they're unusual. And so I'm expressing skepticism that the only groups of people were some guys in France and some guys in at Yale in the 19th century that figured out they were cosmic. Yeah, I kind of doubt that. They might have had better evidentiary support to back up their point, but I just feel like a lot of people think things come from space. <laughs> <laughs> and so it's the type of thing where I, I would be willing to bet somebody else came up with that idea too, prior to 1803 or 1794. Uh, likely. <laughs> Now, worldwide, the impact craters of meteorites were first thought to be either old volcanoes or explosion sites, which makes a lot of sense because especially larger meteorites that make impact craters are obliterated on contact. So you're not necessarily, or they're buried deep in the ground. So you're not necessarily finding these strange objects that are notable in conjunction with these huge craters. Hmm. So because they're not necessarily directly connected, it makes sense that people wouldn't immediately connect them and would think they were some other phenomenon that they have observed mm -hmm. that makes similar shapes. There are actually fossil meteorites. Oh. So meteorites that were buried way long ago have actually been, had their minerals replaced by terrestrial minerals, much like a fossil's organic components are replaced with terrestrial minerals. Okay. There's a huge, it's not a stockpile, there's a huge patch of them in Sweden. Huh. And so that's been a, a great way to study the fossilized meteorites. So it's something that they're not inert in the Earth's crust when they land. They can actually be altered by the Earth's crust. Oh, I had no idea. I just always assumed that they were all iron. Yeah. And actually far fewer of them are iron than stone. Oh, okay. And sometimes they are a mix of all kinds of different minerals. And sometimes they're just hunks of iron. The Chicxulub crater. Chicxulub, I'm probably not pronouncing that correctly. Where is it? Mexico. Oh, okay. May have resulted in the Cretaceous extinction. Oh. That was the dinosaurs going extinct. Now... I think it contributed, but I don't think it was the only thing that caused the Cretaceous extinction. I think that flowering plants had a hand in that, but they're not a massive cratered event. So they're harder to trace in terms of their impact on dinosaurs. They threw all their eyeglasses in the, in the uh, landfills. <laughs> <laughs> and they couldn't see. And then they couldn't see and they all died. <laughs> <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> I mean, you know what? There have been worse theories, I'm sure. <laughs> so it's not like meteorites, which can be as small as a grain of sand or as large as like miles across, are completely inert novelties. Like, oh, a space rock. How fun. I'm like, well, they may have resulted in a massive extinction event. And they may be linked to Permian and another, I think, Triassic, a different extinction event, but some other massive impacts, not this specific 
impacting the Yucatan Peninsula. But they there's less direct evidence. Oh, hey, Sarah's got a map as the cover for her table that we're working on. And the Yucatan Peninsula is right next to our soundboard. <laughs> Perfect. Now, a meteorite might kill you. In 1911, an Egyptian dog was struck by a meteorite and killed. Shotsy, watch out. Yeah, look out, Shots. In 1972, a cow was cut in half by a meteorite in Venezuela. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> cows just get a raw deal in the topics I cover, it seems. <laughs> Poor cows. Now, it can be very difficult to provide evidentiary support for deaths related to meteorite and meteorite impacts because the meteorite can be obliterated on contact. It can break up above the Earth's surface, it's still a meteor at that point, but it can cause massive sort of physical, like air impacts. And I'll talk about a few of those. And that can cause damage, but then there's, it broke up in the atmosphere. It's dust now. You can't prove it. Or people might just tell stories and say that a rock did it and it wasn't actually a rock. Mm-hmm. You know, it's... History is full of stories that are just that. In 1490 AD in China, there may have been a meteorite impact that killed thousands, but it hasn't been verified. But that makes some sense in that I've been reading largely English sources and 1490 AD Chinese records are probably difficult to translate into English at best if it has been done at all. So it's been hard to verify, but it's also been the type of thing that the there was a historian that was quoted as saying that uh, there has never been a death of a human by a meteorite that has been observed both by a physician and someone who studies meteorites. <laughs> <laughs> but he also made the point that a lot of people who are negative about, oh, this couldn't possibly have happened, haven't read the firsthand accounts. A lot of them aren't in whatever language the meteor, meteorite studier. I don't remember what the word is. It's not meteorologist. That's someone who studies weather up in the sky. I don't like that. I wish that it was a weatherologist. <laughs> <laughs> I wish a meteorologist actually studied meteors. That'd be so much easier. It would be, yeah, it would make uh, me sound a lot smarter right now. That's for sure. Oh, <laughs> you sound smart anyway. <laughs> In 1954 in Alabama, and this has been verified, a woman got whacked with a meteorite after it went through her roof of her house, bounced off her radio, and then bruised her. Oh. But she was otherwise fine, and now it's in the Natural History Museum in Alabama. It's better than that cow got away. Uh, Yeah. And then a Ugandan boy was hit by a tiny meteorite. This was verified. I couldn't find a date. The meteorite had bounced through some banana leaves and bopped him on the head. And because it had bounced through the banana leaves, it didn't hurt him. It was like a little pebble just sort of being gently dropped on his head. And he didn't materially, like, the reason that people don't think his story is made up is he, there was no reason for him to say anything other than what happened. Yeah, I mean. Like, it's not like he got on, onto the, what is that, Weekly World News cover? or whatever. (laughs) (laughs) He didn't get on a reality television deal out of Right. Maury Povich. I'm showing my age with that one. <laughs> Donahue. <laughs> now, there are some massive disintegration 
events of meteors that caused their own impact. So it wasn't a meteorite, but it was a meteor that caused impacts on the ground. One was in 1908, where 2,000 kilometers of Siberia forest was just flattened. Just... And they think it was the disintegration of a meteor causing enough force, because it was close enough to the Earth, to flatten a bunch of forest. There were no known human fatalities. There were probably a few squirrels that did not make it out. I'm just guessing. In 2002, there was a meteor breakup above Russia that had enough force to be noticed by the U.S. military. Who knows where we were in terms of spying, but it was it was a big enough impact that the U.S. took interest. And then I don't know if you remember this, but I remember it. In 2013, there was a meteor in Russia that broke up. It was it was like a fireball, like the really the, yeah. the really bright ones. And everybody caught it on their dash cams. Because everybody has dash cams in Russia, apparently. Yeah, and so there were there were compilations of dash cam footage. It was unbelievable, uh, of but the, it happened. Yeah, and people didn't know what it was, and 2013 was kind of a sketchy time. <laughs> so, I mean, it's a sketchy time now, but everyone was kind of like, what? Who's who's attacking who? What is this? No, no. And then it was, it was just a rock from space. <laughs> and some people could actually feel the heat oh, my from gosh. the meteor. It was so bright and so incandescent from the... What is it? Ram pressure. Wow. Because it was a larger one. Wow. But because it disintegrated, I don't know that any of it was collected. Now, this last little tidbit is just kind of a fun one. And I'm going to recommend another podcast called Antiques Freaks. I've been telling everyone about this podcast. And they have an episode on diamonds. And they talk about the history of diamonds and why they're currently, you know, flogged to death as the gem you have to have in a wedding ring, etc. And I don't care for the ethics surrounding diamond production from A to Z, any of it. Diamond production or popularity or any of it, personally. That's just my opinion. That is not an official (laughs) where-does-it-go podcast opinion. And they're not actually rare either. No, not at all. Sapphires are apparently very rare. But... There is a gemstone called moissanite, which is a silicon carbide, and it's a mineral that was discovered. It is naturally occurring. It was discovered in an Arizonan, Arizonian? Yeah, Arizonian meteor crater. And in the 19th century, a little later than when they figured out, but not a lot later than when they figured out these rocks were from space, it was it was thought to be a decent diamond replacement and it's just a hair softer than a diamond on the on the mohs scale the scale for hardness mm-hmm. a diamond is a 10 moissanite is a 9.5 oh wow okay so industrially it has excellent applications and that's where most of the actual value of a diamond is as well but it can be created in a lab so it can be generated from crystals from a meteor so from a natural source or from you know future creations from lab created sources and it's also got jewelry uses it is an option for not having a diamond but having a very nice white stone that has brilliant light refraction and my wedding ring is actually a moissanite 
I just, oh, I had no idea. I didn't wear it today, but it's beautiful and I love it. And it was so much less expensive. And I'm not going to talk about money because I think that's rude. But <laughs> <laughs> uh, it was an excellent option. And my cousin Elaine also has a moissanite, I think. It's becoming more and more popular. And I love that it doesn't have the sort of ethical hangups that diamonds have. And it's generated from a mineral that came from space. It's so cool. Space mineral. And there's a, there's a factory in North Carolina, I believe, that produces them. It's about a two-hour drive from where we are. And then my, uh, the ring itself that I had was made from recycled white gold. Oh, that's awesome. So it's sort of a shop local wedding ring. Yay! <laughs> and it really is lovely. So that's where they can go. They can become jewelry. They can become flattened Siberian forests. They can kill your cow. They can <laughs> break up in the atmosphere and become dust. They can go a lot of places. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. I like that you mentioned Antiques Freaks. I love their podcast. They are so funny. Mm-hmm. I've listened to them frequently, and uh, they're right up my alley because they talk about a lot of the stuff that I see every day in estate sales and auctions. So it, it's it been a good time listening to them. I totally suggest them, too. And they're, they're really informative and hilarious. Yes, they are an excellent listen. Every every single episode I've listened to, and every person I've recommended them to has loved the podcast, mm-hmm. and very different people listen yeah, to it. Yeah, that's cool. I had no idea about Moissanite. That's awesome. Yeah. I love Moissanite. It's just so neat, and it's so much less expensive than diamonds. How is it spelled? M-O-I-S-O-N? Moissanite? M- it, to me, it sounds like moist. Moistanite. It's named after the, uh, the guy... I think it's Henri Moisson. Oh, okay. That might be the wrong first name. But it's M-O-I-S-S-A-N-I-T-E. S-S. Yes. Okay, cool. And actually, the patent recently ran out in the U.S., I think. And also in Europe. I believe you can now get it from more than just the single patented, the single producer. Cool. Now, when I got my ring... It was from the patented producer. That doesn't really mean anything about quality. It's more just my ring is a little older than 2015. Yeah. Very neat. Mm -hmm. And I have a reuse project. Yay! This one people might think is a little weird, but I think it's neat. So when I was on a hike with my daughter and a friend of mine at West Point on the Eno Mm -hmm. somewhat recently, we came across moth wings. A bird oh. had eaten a moth. Mm-hmm. I believe it was a Cecropia moth, but it might have been an Atlas moth. I have a hard time telling the difference between the two. But it, the bird had left the wings, and they were mostly intact. And a lot of times you'll see a dead butterfly here and there with very nice intact wings. And I, I was thinking, man, I'd love to make jewelry with that. So I picked them up, and I looked up how to best preserve them, and laminating them is the best way to preserve them (gasps) so i laminated the moth wings i I actually dried them first so i pressed them in a book between paper towel they weren't wet per se but i figured there could be lingering moisture so i pressed them for like a month 
and then laminated them. And now I'm going to bead around them and they're just beautiful. And it's a way to have sort of, because you find these animals already deceased, I'm not recommending you collect butterflies and kill them. Please don't. It's, they die so quickly anyway. Just wait. Right. <laughs> just wait. But it's such an interesting piece of jewelry to have them as earrings. And I'm going to give a pair to the friend I was hiking with. That's amazing. That's such a good idea. Yeah. And I want to ask the Museum of Life and Science what they do with all the butterflies that die and moths in their butterfly uh, exhibit. Well, the, the ones that are good enough, like the ones that don't have messed up wings and stuff, they make those displays that you see in the shop of those butterflies in the in the in the plastic tube not in a plastic tube but in the plexi case oh cool yeah i know i know they do that with some of them i'm pretty sure but i don't know what i mean they have like tens of thousands every year yeah they i i believe i asked them once how many it's either how many die or how many are released in a day Mm -hmm. i think it's 600 butterflies and moths a day are released which makes sense. They have short life cycles. And if they're in sort of an optimized environment like that, it's not like there's a bunch of birds and parasites and stuff that are preying on their eggs or them. So it would be interesting to ask what they actually do with those to see yeah. if that's a resource. Yeah. Or just go outside and wait because in the middle of the summer in particular and then also in the fall. And laminators are significantly less expensive than I thought they'd be. Oh, cool. Yay. Because I remember just being, you know, as a child, if something was laminated, it just felt like such a big deal. <laughs> right? Yeah. It was like it was just very special. And using a laminator felt very special and expensive. It was like using a, a video recorder. It was equipment that you needed to be trained on and was too much money for anyone to be touching and needed to be protected at all costs. <laughs> I remember when I got my library card when I was a kid and I had to get a new one because I lost my old one and they got a laminator and I got to watch it being laminated there. It was like the best. It made my day. I was like, oh, my God, that's the coolest thing ever. Yeah. And then it's just protected forever. Yeah. It's just two pieces of plastic. (laughs) And they're really easy to get a hold of now. Yeah. I think I have a laminator. (laughs) Ours is from Amazon. My husband and I were both staggered at the price. Yeah, they're like five dollars. I know they're not something. They're not expensive at all. Uh, So that's and I know that is making them into something that is going to kind of last forever. But it's a neat conversation piece. It's a way to interact with nature that is active enough to be interested, but passive enough to not cause damage. Yeah, and it sounds beautiful. Yeah, and, you know, a lot of jewelry is made out of plastic anyway, and it might be something that people would like as gifts. Mm -hmm. It's not very expensive. Right. And it's a neat conversation piece. That's so cool. I'll put a picture up on Twitter when I finish them because I want to bead around them. Nice. Yeah. Please visit our website, com. The end. The end. (laughs) 